Let me encourage you to uh, keep Mark 4 and 5 open if you've got a Bible there. And you might also want to open up a little handout that you got when you came in. Uh, There's a few things I'm going to pick up on uh, that are there for you. Uh, But there's no doubt about it, is it? We're, We're in a very chaotic and devastating world. And it's become most apparent to us. Uh, since uh, the end of last year in particular, as even here in this part of the world, we've experienced uh, significant uh, fires and the destruction of fires. We've experienced uh, torrential rain and uh, flooding in some places. People have been isolated, people have been trapped, people have lost property, uh, livestock, their livelihoods, and even some have lost their lives. And now uh, we're faced with Uh, the increase of this virus, uh, the form of coronavirus, and just gradually, uh, at least it seems gradual from where we are, it's creeping closer to home. And I think it's a very confronting time for people because we like to think that we're in control of the world, of our worlds, and increasingly things are happening that just show us that we're not. Uh, People describe the horror, the intensity of incredibly furious fires uh, and and firefighters having to evacuate and flee for their lives. They knew that they weren't in control. Uh, I've been to Canberra in in the last week and I went in to pick up a hire car and they said, look, there's been a lot of pressure on hire cars. 30,000 cars were written off in Canberra uh, in the hailstorm that took place uh, a bit over a month ago, I think it was. And so you you look at the pressure, a, a large number of the hire cars also destroyed and then everyone else needing a hire car very difficult to get one and it's probably only the fact that I'd booked this particular trip many months ago that enabled me to get access people like to be in control but increasingly we discover that we're not I think that probably one of the most uh, bizarre and uh, and visual demonstrations of our desire to be in control is the massive invasion in supermarkets of the toilet paper shelves. Um, You think, I I can't control the fires, I can't control the floods, I can't control a potential pandemic, but I'm out of control what I wipe my backside with. Uh, And I'm not going to miss out on toilet paper. Um, It kind of makes sense in a way. Well, what I want us to think about this afternoon as we look at these accounts in Mark 4 and 5 Uh, is, first of all, what it means for Jesus to be in control of our world and what that looks like, but also to be thinking about why it is that we have a message of hope to share with the world that we're in and how relevant it is even now. And um, in order to put this into context, I've put a little diagram there which shows you uh, a quick overview of world history. Uh, Now, it's a very quick overview uh, there in one line. I was given a book as a a thank you for being National Director of the FIC last week, and I thought it was a bit of a joke. Uh, It was this massive book, uh, about that fat, 700 pages, called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And I'm slowly kind of working my way through this book. Well, here's my summary of, uh, of, of history. It's there on one line. Starts with creation, in the beginning God. Uh, that's, the, that's the very beginning of all things. God existed before. After God speaks, then we have matter, we have energy, we have activity, we have the creation of things. Uh, and that creation is very good for two chapters. 
Uh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And the man and the woman are there in the garden, the Garden of Eden. It's paradise. There's a good relationship with each other, with the animal kingdom, with the garden, with God himself, until you get to chapter 3. And so if you want to pick important moments in world history, creation, and then the next important moment is the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman takes some of the fruit and gives it to her husband who also eats of this fruit, which is not an apple. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which the man and the woman were commanded not to eat, and yet they choose to do things their way and push God to the side. We've been doing it ever since. That fall has shaped the history of the world ever since. And you and I don't live in paradise, however they might like to describe the Mid-North Coast. We live in the fall and the outworking of the fall. In fact, in the book of Romans, it says that God has subjected this world to frustration. We now live under the curse of God because of our rebellion against God. Things don't go the way that they should. Things are a mess. There is pain. There is suffering. There is disease. There is death. Now, Jesus enters into the post-fall world. That's the next big moment in world history. Uh, And it's significant, I think, um, certainly in the Western world, uh, that whether you want to call it the common era or BC, AD, the, the turning point of our calendars hinges on Jesus. And from God's perspective, not just from human observation, from God's perspective, that is the key event, the biggest event in the whole of history, when God enters our world in Jesus Christ, his son, And Jesus shows us glimpses of what the world is to be like, what God is planning to do. Remember, we've seen that Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. And now in this chapter, and what we'll look at in just a second, we'll see what it looks like when the kingdom of God invades, when the king is present, and what he does in a post-fall world. Now, we've got Jesus. Now, where are we in this? Well, we're not there at the time of Jesus, and we're certainly not before Jesus. We're after Jesus. But we are not yet at the time of the new creation. And so the Bible takes us from Genesis in the beginning right through to the very end, the book of Genesis. And in the last two chapters of Genesis, chapter 21, 22, God promises to bring in a new creation. He's going to make things right. And we're looking forward to things being made right, when there'll be no more pain or sickness or suffering or death, when the old order has passed away and and things are now right and they're right for eternity. So there you've got a quick overview of history from the very beginning to the very end. And it's important, I think, for us to recognise where we are at. We are post-Jesus, but we are before the new creation. Now, I'll come back to that in a second. Now, I put this diagram together and then this morning when I was looking at it again, I realised that there's a mistake. And so here's a quick quiz. You find the mistake. Uh, and there'll be a prize for the person who finds the mistake. Quick, have a look. What do you reckon the mistake is, Annette? Jesus is creation. Oh, yeah, okay. You could, yeah, you could put Jesus anywhere there, right? That's not my mistake. Ah, Marty, you've done very well. 
Yeah. Yeah, the, the new creation is not the end, is it? The line should continue. Uh, but there will be a day when God restores all things. Now, that's very good. And I'm going to buy you a coffee. That's what it will be. Yeah. In fact, I'll buy you a bag of coffee beans. How's that? Yeah. Um, we need to recognise that we are between Jesus and the new creation because when we forget where we are, then we have wrong expectations. And those wrong expectations can, can lead to incredible hurt. And we'll uh, explore that um, in a bit. But let's have a look then, first of all, at, at this picture. Jesus enters into the scene and he enters into an environment which is outside of, of Eden. It's, it's a fall environment. It's a world where there is suffering and, and death and so on. And you see some examples of this, don't you? So uh, at the end of chapter four, a, a hostile environment. Um, the hostile environment is a storm. And it's a, it's a squall that blows up and the, and the sea is actually uh, is violent and there are waves breaking over the boat. Now, these are fishermen. They're, they're used to the sea and yet they are afraid. And they wake him up. Don't you care if we drown? We see Jesus entering to a hostile environment and we'll see his response. And his response, we notice, is to calm that storm. We'll come back to that. But we also see Jesus engaging with what we might call hostile spiritual powers. So in the next account, the beginning of Mark chapter 5, there's a demon-possessed man. There's a, a man who, is, uh, who, who has uh, been inhabited by an impure or an unclean spirit. And uh, this, this unclean spirit has a name, uh, and that is legion. Uh, because it's not one spirit, it's many spirits, because we are many. Now, this guy is very antisocial. He's living out in the cemetery, the place of the dead. Uh, they try and chain him up, but he's, he's violent and he's strong. He's able to break the chains. And he slashes himself as well. I mean, this isn't the sort of guy that you invite home for dinner. Right? He's a guy that just shows that things can go pretty violently bad particularly when there are demonic forces at work in this person. Now, Jesus confronts this, and they're terrified that Jesus confronts this initially because uh, they, of course, the, the evil spirits right through Mark's Gospel, they know the identity of Jesus. They know that he is the Son of God, even if people are slow to pick up on this. And they fear for themselves. And so that they beg with Jesus... Uh, to not cast them out, uh, but to, to, send, to, to actually enable them to go from this man into a herd of pigs, which gives us a bit of a clue as to where it is. It's clearly not in Judea. Uh, there wouldn't have been herding pigs there. The Gerasenes is a, is a Greek area. It's an area, not a Jewish area. And we see the account there of what happens when the evil spirits go into the pigs and, and the pigs rush down uh, into the water and they're drowned. And this uh, incredible message goes out. This, this would have created a massive stir. And it's interesting that what they're really afraid of after all this isn't legion, it isn't the demons, it isn't the pigs, it's Jesus. And they beg Jesus to leave the area. 
maybe they were a little bit worried about uh, you know, destroying entire herds of pigs, which was their livelihood. I don't know. But incredible power of Jesus at work here in the face of the demonic. Um, then, of course, we've got two accounts of healing. Um, and they're tied together, aren't they? So you, you get, first of all, the, the story about the synagogue leader called Jairus, who has a little girl who is dying, and he asks Jesus to come that she might live. And you could understand at this point there's a, a sense of urgency about this. I mean, she's dying. And, and the narrative then takes us on a journey. Jesus is heading that direction, um, and he's somewhat waylaid. Uh, there's a woman who touches his garment, and... And this woman has had a discharge for 12 years. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on for her, but it would have been uncomfortable, unpleasant and antisocial. This would have probably isolated the woman from all those around about her. Uh, In fact, there's an uncleanness theme through this particular part of Mark's Gospel as well. Unclean spirits, an unclean woman and, of course... To be sick was to be unclean and to be dead and to touch the dead was to be unclean. And Jesus comes into contact. Uh, well, literally, the woman reaches out and touches his garment and, and, uh, and Jesus says, who is it that touched me? Because power goes from him. And I imagine that Jesus actually knows who it is, but he draws attention to what has happened and points out this woman's faith. Then, um, with this delay, at least in the narrative and the way it's told, news comes to Jesus, literally saying, look, you've been messing about too long. Um, Didn't actually say that, but the news is now that the little girl has died. Um, You should have got there quicker. I mean, she was sick, but now she's dead. And Jesus' reply is extraordinary. Um, Overhearing uh, what they said in verse 36, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And then he goes with Peter and James and and John, uh, the brother of James, and they come to the synagogue leader's home and there are a whole bunch of people there wailing and carrying on. Maybe you've seen footage of, uh, of mourners in the Middle East or in other parts of this world where mourning, it's almost like a... There's an official or a socially accepted way to do it. And uh, our understanding of the ancient world is you you actually had people who were almost like professional mourners. They'd wail and they'd carry on and and do all sorts of intense things. And Jesus pushes them out of the way. Um, He just wants to be alone with the man, uh, with the daughter, and says to them, why all this commotion? This child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Now, at at this point, just think about it. I mean, here's a man whose little girl, who we discover, um, is 12 years old. Again, there's a bit of a theme here. The woman with 12 years of bleeding, and now this little girl is 12 years old. Jesus confronts them both. And this little girl has been sick to the point of dying, And now a message comes to say that she's dead and Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Now, can you imagine doing that, saying that? Or hearing that said? You'd want to be able to pull it off, wouldn't you? 
you'd want to be able to pull it off or else you, you were saying one of the cruelest things you could possibly say. To give false hope, deliberately false hope, is no hope at all. It's nasty. It's cruel. Now Jesus says that because he can do something about it. And so he puts them out and he takes the child's father and mother and the disciples and he goes in and tenderly he takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, Mark has recorded these four incidents and in putting them together, what we see, I think, is an incredible picture of Jesus' authority and power placed alongside his love and compassion. See, Jesus is able to do what only God can do. For Jesus to be able to stand in the boat and say to the wind and the waves, quiet, be still, and have them stop, um, you, you try it, right? Um, you know, next time there's a big swell coming into Rainbow Beach or wherever it is, you try just standing up and saying, stop, be quiet, be still. Make sure you film it, by the way, so we can have a look at it, see what happened. Now, let me take you back to a couple of psalms. This is uh, Psalm, if I've got the right one, Psalm 107. Listen to this. Psalm 107, this is talking about God. Verse 29, he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Or to go back to the psalm before, Psalm 106 and uh, verse 9. It's talking about the exodus where God's people were saved from Egypt and they go through the Red Sea. It says, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as though through a desert he saved them from the hand of the foe. So when Jesus stands up and, and speaks to the wind and the waves and the storm immediately dies down, listening to Jesus, it's, it's not just a miracle worker on the scene. No, you've got God walking amongst us. So too, when you, you look at what happens with the, the demon-possessed man and the authority of Jesus being clear even the demons are, are afraid of what Jesus might do. Jesus, again and again through the Gospels, comes into conflict with, with the demonic. And so with the sickness of the little girl and, and the woman who's been bleeding, and Jesus is able just with a word, just with a touch from her to him, able to bring about healing and to restore to life. I mean, there's no doubt about it that we're presented with a picture of Jesus that is absolutely extraordinary, powerful, commanding, authoritative, godlike picture of Jesus. And yet, it's with incredible kindness, love, compassion, tenderness. The, the, the beautiful picture in verse 41 he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And, and the woman, the kindness to her of, of restoring her to good health and the compassion on the man whose life 
It was no longer his own. It was destroyed by the demons invading him. You see, with Jesus, we have him acting in such a way that we're experiencing a taste of the new creation now. But for all of that, it is not yet the new creation. It's a taste. It's a foretaste. It's an anticipation of what is to happen. And friends, I think we need to have our expectations clear. One of the sadnesses that I've seen in Christian circles, and I think one of the, one of the dangers and hurts that, that too many Christians have experienced is to be told by God that if they have enough faith, then they will be healed. Or things will be right, that their circumstances will go wonderfully, perfectly, happily. But the problem is not with the promise. The problem is with the timing. See, we live in the the now but not yet. We live after Jesus has come and before Jesus returns. We, We may well have the joy of glimpses of the authority of God changing circumstances here and now. And we do. We absolutely do. Did we not pray for rain? And the fires were all out. Isn't that the mercy of God? Isn't God answering prayer? Absolutely he is. We get examples here and now. We get a taste here and now. And it's easy, I think, to take for granted some of the blessings of God that we receive here and now. Warwick asked me when I came in, I'd actually forgotten about it, but it was on your mind. He said, how did your scans go? I'd forgotten that a couple of weeks ago I had CT scans to find out what was going on inside my body, see if the cancer was active, whether it had grown, whether it had spread. And I can report the the great news that there has been no progression of the cancer. In fact, it might be that I am, again, no evidence of disease. And I thank God for that. And that is a glimpse of, of his kingdom invading now. But... There will be a day when, even if the cancer doesn't come back, God takes me to be with him. And it will involve sickness and it will involve death. It might be a very dramatic sickness, like being hit by a truck, but that's still pretty sick. No, God does promise full healing. God does promise full prosperity. And God does promise that it will be after Christ returns. And we return to him. Not yet. So we thank him for the good that we experience. We, we take pleasure in the joy of being healthy, of being able to enjoy relationships, of good things happening in our life. The evidence of Jesus being at work in people's lives is a marvellous thing. And in the light of that, we want to be like Jesus to the people around us. To, to show compassion in the meantime. See, we don't take a view that says, well, look, you're not going to be fully healed until you die and go to be with Jesus, so we will do nothing for you now. I could give you a Panadol, but I won't, because it's only temporary. And, you know, you might get rid of the headache now, but it's not really healing until you get to heaven. No, we show compassion, don't we? And so doctors and psychologists and social workers and, and 
helping professions, as they tend to, tend to be called, they're, they're good things. They're blessings of God to us. And we do want to show love to each other. And we do want to show love to our community. And we do want to do practical things and share kind words and just be as Christ to others. We want to do that, and that's worthwhile. While we wait for everything to be put right. The big question, as we see often in Mark's Gospel, in this passage, I think, is the question, who has the authority to do these things? Who is it that can command the wind and the waves and they will obey him? Who is it who has the authority to drive out demons? Who is it who can heal with a touch, with a a kind word, even raising the dead? If you're reading through this and you're trying to to, to nail down who is this person, Jesus. I hope that you're putting together some of these pieces. This is not a, another you know, incredible, uh, outstanding figure of history like, say, Isaac Newton or Socrates, Aristotle, Napoleon. No, Jesus is different. What he does what he says, who he claims to be, the impact, he's different. And when you understand who Jesus is, his difference makes an impact to you. Because if he is God among us, and if he's come to show his power to save, then he's calling us to put our trust in him, our faith in him. And I think that's what this passage, as with so many in Mark's Gospel, are calling us to do. To put our trust, whatever we're facing, in Jesus. Will you do that? Let me pray.